0: I missed you last Sunday. I'm really grateful to be back with you. So appreciate Bill Bourne stepping in really late in the week with uh, the uh, message from, as he was finishing up John 13, did a great job, and I'm glad to be back with you today as we continue our series, This is Love, and we're in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible today, if you want to make your way to John chapter 14, we will begin looking at that chapter today and spending some time together there. As we're doing that, um, let me give you a couple updates about things that are going on. First off, our design class. I love this class so much because it helps us understand how has God put me together, how has he shaped me, how has he built me, how has he designed me, and how do I put those gifts in motion in a place like Trinity Church? And so my good friend Michael Burns is going to be teaching that. That's next Sunday, the 30th. You'll see the times there, 1030 to 12:30. And so if you're just trying to figure out, God, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what you've built me for, what you've shaped me to do, come to the class, not only get instruction, but man, Michael does a great job sitting down with people and saying, Let me let's talk a little bit more about this and really try to help you find a place to put your gifts in motion. So Please join us for that next week. Also, you remember a couple weeks ago, our chairman of our elder board, Dan Fleming, was here and shared with you about an Elder Town Hall meeting that is two weeks from today, February the 6th, and that'll be from three to five o'clock over in the ministry building in 104-105. So please make plans to join us that afternoon. If you want to just kind of hear what the elders are working on, specifically, we'll be sharing about constitutional revision ideas that a subcommittee have been working on. They're going to present those to to those there and dialogue about those as well as some staff updates so we'll be looking forward to some time with you well here's the weird thing so joanna and i left friday afternoon to go up to newberry springs if you've never heard of it there's a good reason why it is 30 miles still north of barstow so you're just going and going and you drive past it if you ever go to vegas on the 15 But we were there with a a church and their couples. It was a married couples weekend, just a Friday night, Saturday. Got back late last night. Now, when we got home, we experienced the reality of the wind you experienced while we were gone. Our backyard was a mess, hammock over in the uh, fountain and water running somehow. A chair had bumped up against a spigot and it's, I just looked at like a bomb blew off in the backyard. So I'm sorry I missed your wonderful wind. If you look at my car today, we drove on three miles each direction of unpaved roads, so it looks like I've been off-roading in a sedan. So all the way around, all kinds of things that don't fit, but they are they are, and we're grateful to be back and, and diving with you today. We continue in John chapter 14 with this upper room discourse, Jesus talking with these loved disciples, these friends that he has been doing everything with for the last three years. And as he's sharing with them, he's sharing some things that are at times very confusing, at other times very frightening, and yet he's giving them some amazing words of encouragement and hope. Today what we're gonna see in John chapter 14, you're probably gonna find nowhere else in the Bible such an exclusive statement about Jesus being the only way to heaven. And he shares that in the midst of the conversation that we're looking at today. And what we're also gonna see is then the disciples in their confusion and even in their fear Jesus is actually interestingly going to give them the same kind of, of um, a comfort, but in an interesting way, in the same way when he confronted Jewish religious leaders. It's gonna be one and the same type of reason why they can trust him. So we're gonna dive in today and we're gonna see what Jesus is saying. He said to disciples 2,000 years ago at a Passover meal, He says to his disciples gathered here today at Trinity Church, here online, here on the pavilion, he tells us these words today as well. John 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. One of the things we've tried to do in Scripture is that every time... Either Jesus and his teaching, we see it a lot when an angelic presence comes. Every time someone says, don't be afraid, we want to remind ourselves, that's because people were afraid. You don't tell people to calm down and not be afraid when they're doing fine. So that means the disciples were in a state in this upper room conversation, they're in a state of deep concern. And think about Why? Jesus has already told them around the Passover meal, one of you will betray me. You will sell me out to those who have been on my heels. And another one of you even calls him out, calls out Peter, Peter, tonight alone, you're going to act like you're going to say you don't even know who I am, not once, but three times. That causes a great sense of angst, a great sense of concern and confusion. What is going on? So in this troubled moment, that's the context for what Jesus is about to say next. It's important to understand these words don't just come out of the blue, come out of nowhere. They come in the context of don't be afraid. This word troubled, when you go back to the original Greek word, it means this. It's good to define the words. Causing emotional agitation from getting too stirred up inside. Simple question, when's the last time that you were troubled? Some of you are like, this morning. <laughs> Causing emotional agitation from getting too stirred up inside. Maybe related to financial strain. Maybe related to children who are struggling at all various different stages related to politics, related to COVID, related to the fact that your in-laws are coming out for a whole week, okay? Emotional agitation. And this is what he cites is the cure, is the response in the midst of being troubled that they should be faithing in God and faithing in him. Right, really weird word, we don't talk that way. The word that's been translated in our Bibles is believe, believe in God, believe also in me. Though like what we've seen, this word in the original language is the verbal form of the other word that we see always translated in the New Testament as faith. Faith. So faith now as a verb, faithing, actively trusting, confident in who I am, faithing in God and faithing in me. That's what you do when you have a troubled heart, actively putting your confidence in a Jesus who is trustworthy. And you see, this word is a big word for a reason, because it is asking a lot. It's asking us to take our well-being. It's asking us to take the things we're deeply concerned about. It's asking us to take our troubled hearts and set them in his lap. And say, so, Jesus, I believe I'm in you, faithing in you to handle the things that are causing me the most concern. What Jesus is going to do, this is a fascinating part of our, our study in this last chapters 13 to 21. Jesus is actually going to say, you have had a faith in me in the sense that when I have said bold things, when I have done amazing things, you have had to believe that that's coming from God. That's been the kind of faith. It's been a faith full of sight. They were there. When the man who hadn't walked for 38 years was able to walk, they were there when the blind received sight. They were there when they heard Jesus say things that only God says. So they've seen with their eyes, they've heard with their ears, and their faith isn't the fact that they don't have evidence. Their faith is, who is this person? Who is able to do these things? Where does his power, where does his authority, where does this richness of who he is come from? That's what has needed faith and what other people who interacted with Jesus, we've seen it time and time again, not convinced. Not really sure, it's odd, but he's from Nazareth. And they all keep walking away. These guys hang in there. These guys have that kind of faith, but now what Jesus is saying is your faith is going to be transferred into a different kind of faith, a faith that you will need to have in me when you don't see me, when you don't hear me, when you're not present when I'm doing supernatural things. And all of a sudden, it dawns on us, well, that's the kind of faith I have to have. I don't walk with Jesus like the disciples got to. I don't get to stand there and listen to him speak, both to the sinner and to the religious leader. I don't get to see him do miraculous things literally from his hands. So, the faith that Jesus is transitioning them to is the faith that you and I have had all along. If you've ever thought, God, it's hard for me to read the Bible and to really relate to things like Jesus' disciples because they got to see him, now Jesus is telling them, you will no longer see me. And the kind of faith it's going to require to follow him is the kind of faith that we have known all along. So talk about application talk about this sense of being able to relate to these passages. He goes on to tell them that the kind of faithing he's asking them to have is a kind of faithing that's going to be rewarded. That he's going away and he's going to prepare a place to bring them to, to his father's house. If you grew up in youth group or a Christian kid in a similar, well, it would be a later era than me, But one of your all-time favorite audio adrenaline songs is called Father's House, where we can play, all right, three of us, football. Yeah, exactly. I love that song. It's so great, just so fun and bouncy, and it's a great reminder, man, there is something so worth looking forward to, being in his house. And I want you to see this really cool, powerful thing that John has done. See, as we've been looking at the gospel of John on and off for over a year, We're now picking up key themes as we get to this point. How did John 1 begin? In your Bibles, in your notes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, pitched his tent among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus' first arrival, He came and he made his home among us, left his father's house, came among us, made his home, dwelt among us, but now he's telling his disciples at my second coming, I will come and get you, scoop you up, and I won't make a home with you here, I'll bring you back to mine. So we're watching a theme in John's gospel about dwellings, about homes, where our home really is. Jesus' home was with the Father. He left that on our behalf. When he comes back for us, he'll bring us back to be with him in his Father's house forever. I get geeked up about stuff about heaven with good reason. This is good news. This is great news. This is hope. And I hope that's unfailing because the one who told us these things would be true is trustworthy. You see, you need to know that today. Whether you've been at Trinity for a long time, whether you're a guest here today, we don't believe heaven to be some ethereal, philosophical, just kind of blah place that we talk about to make ourselves feel good about what happens when you die. We don't believe that the heaven as recorded in scripture is some kind of feeling or just some kind of thing floating out there. We believe in a real place. We believe in a real Jesus. We believe in his real father. We believe in the spirit who will inhabit this place, invite us in to be forever at home. That is praiseworthy. That's excitement worthy. That's something we get geeked up about. And we do because this is what's powerful. It's in this context of their fears. It's in this context of their troubled heart that Jesus says, let me tell you what's coming. Huh. I don't know about you, but in the pandemic, I have never... Thought so much about and never found so much encouragement in the hope of heaven as I have in the last year and a half, almost two years. I think about it more than ever. And it doesn't cause me to be distracted, it doesn't cause me to be just kind of aloof and in some other place. It reminds me that everything here is worth it because that's waiting. I can keep going. I can keep putting one foot in front of the next because it won't always be this hard. There is something better awaiting you and me, and it is this place. What's fascinating is at the end of all of this, Jesus says this really confusing statement, you know the way to where I'm going. And we're going to see Thomas ask the question that everybody else wanted to. What? Read on, John 14, five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, read it with me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I wanna give Thomas some credit, because I really believe you and I would ask the very same question. Last statement, you know the way to where I'm going. Uh, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Super logical, right? Super, super logical question. It would be like your friend saying, hey, we're going to go up and stay at that cabin by the lake. Make sure you join us. What cabin, what lake? Are you serious? Like, Tell me to join you. I don't know where you're going. How in the world do I know the map to get there? It's a very logical question that you and I would have asked. I know I surely would. The only reason you wouldn't have asked the question is if you were following the storyline of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, who merrily, 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 on his way to nowhere. (laughs) Just hop in the car and drive crazy, and it doesn't matter where you end up. That would be acceptable. But Jesus, you're talking about this incredibly real place where you're actually going and and physically preparing something for us. What do you mean? If we don't know where that is, how can we know the way? I want to stop and consider this idea for just a minute. Again, context, right? Context speaks to us. It gives us understanding of what's going on. It's in the context of a conversation about his father's house. That's what's going on at the beginning of John 14. And this conversation he's having with his disciples, he's telling them some very real particular details about what that house, what that tent is going to be like, which are all good and exciting things. And it's in that context he tells them, you know the way to the Father, or I'm sorry, you know the way to the place where I'm going, you know the way to the Father's house. We still don't get it, Jesus, what is that? Look in your notes. If you're confused about the destination, then how can you know the directions to get there? If you're confused about what is the destination, then you, how could you know the directions of how to get there? This all makes total sense, that Thomas and others are confused. But now let's dial back and remember what the context of the conversation Jesus is saying. My father has a house. I'm getting it ready and I'm gonna come back and bring you to be with me. What this is demonstrating to them is they weren't convinced there was such a place. They weren't convinced that this really was a destination that they were ultimately going to go to. And therefore, when Jesus says you know the way, they don't have a clue. You see, if you're here today and you're thinking that heaven is a lot of fictitious thought, If you're here today thinking that heaven is just something we keep saying to help people feel good about what happens after other people die. If you're here today and you're just thinking, I just don't know if the thing makes any sense. Now, by the way, I'm not saying if you're here today and have questions of what heaven will be like. The Bible gives us some information but there's a lot up for grabs. So the last thing I would say is I know everything about what heaven's gonna be like, I don't. But I surely do believe it is a real place that Jesus' followers are going to spend forever around the throne of God. If you're here and you're not on that page, guess what? You're going to be super confused if there even is a way to that. Because you're not sure there is such a destination anyway. And that's why Jesus is saying what he's saying. He's reassuring his disciples in these last conversations that his father's house does exist, that it is a place where they want to be, and that it's worth anything they go through in this life because it awaits. Jesus connects the dot in the most powerful, masterful way. Jesus, we don't know the way. I am the way. Thomas, this home that I'm going to, thats I'm going to go and prepare for you, it's, it's not only real, but the doorway is me. I'm the passage. I'm the way to the Father. So if you want to know the way to the Father in his house, look at me. Look to me. And recognize that it's only through me that you'll arrive safe at home. The two other descriptors that Jesus uses, he talks about being the truth and the life. And I would just say this, if you're looking for a succinct way to remember the character and the value of Jesus, memorize John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's interesting, John, in this same gospel, has actually already told us that Jesus was these things. Back in John chapter 1, he said that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And in that same chapter earlier above, he talked about in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. So John is wonderfully weaving together this story of saying things about Jesus and then Jesus reinforcing them later in this same gospel. This is such an incredibly significant and important chapter. But note that these are such powerful qualities to understand that Jesus doesn't just demonstrate or possess, but that he is. I These I am statements we've seen all throughout John's gospel are always an allusion to his deity. And that because he is, watch this, that means others are not. Because he is, that means others are not. This is the most exclusive claim that Jesus makes in all of the gospels regarding that there is no other way to the Father. And I would say to you today, this is what he says, if not by me, except through me, there's no way. If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I'm I'm a part of Trinity Church, I subscribe to its, its mission statement and its core values. Well, one of our core values says this, the Bible is God's story given to transform you, watch, and to be the authority in your life. I didn't say that about me, that I'm called to be the authority of your life, that I'm called to transform anyone. The Bible, God's story is meant to be transformative and authoritative in your life. So if you're going to align yourself with Trinity's core value that we derive from scripture, then you will understand that it's not Sincere people from every other world religion that, in their sincerity and in their desire to just be good people, are somehow going to make it to the way to the top of a mountain via their own course. That doesn't exist. Jesus made it clear and Jesus made it exclusive. You might go, man, Todd, that is heavy handed. Can I tell you what that is? That's loving. I love you way too much to gloss over truths that are so meaningful as this. That if you were to walk away and think that people in your relational world who are very sincere in their faith of whatever towards whomever are going to somehow end up In a place of eternal bliss, in a place of glory around the throne of God, they just went a different path. If you're believing that, I just want you to hear clearly today, Jesus didn't believe that. And I love you too much for you to stay in that mode of thinking and think that it's all probably just going to work out. And what does this do because of this exclusive truth related to Jesus? It moves us. It moves us in our own lives to say, Jesus, it's only in you can I place my trust. It's only in you can I have confidence. But it's also motivating us to get involved in the lives of people in our relational world. People that we know that are following different pursuits or no pursuit of any faith at all because we realize... That this reality of this truth is true, not just as a promise for those who put their faith in Christ, but as a truth for those who have not. In your notes, the hope of heaven and the surety of hell motivate us to bring the love and life of Jesus into our relational worlds. The hope of heaven and the surety of hell, they're motivators to bring this love and life of Jesus into our relational worlds. So this should drive you, this drives me. Peter, by the way, one of those present in the upper room that night, he would say in a, in a, a message that was documented in Acts 4, look how he says it, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Let's continue, John 14. If you really know me, verse 7, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me? Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time... Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Of all of these profound statements, Jesus is just filling them right now, not with even necessarily, some are new thoughts, but some are just a undergirding of what they've already heard him say. He says this powerful thing, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one. I represent him completely and fully and perfectly to you. And in the middle of that, think of how that must have been like a dagger to the heart. This is what Philip, in essence, is saying. Jesus, we're afraid, Jesus, you're talking about leaving us. Jesus, we're scared. But if you'll just do this one thing, if you'll just pull back the veil and let us see the Father, we'll be good. Jesus, if you don't expect us to walk by faith, we'll be good. Jesus, we need another trick. We need you to do something huge, something that just really reinforces. And I'm thinking as I'm reading this this week, what has Philip seen with his own eyes? What has Philip heard with his own ears? What boat was Philip in that was all stormy that they thought they were going to drown? And Jesus calms the waters. He has seen it all. And yet still says, Jesus, just a little more. Just show us something that you haven't done yet and we'll believe. We said earlier, this is what Jesus is walking them through. He's telling them, you've had to have some kind of a faith in me. It hasn't been in any way a a no-need faith journey. But now that need for faith is going to change. And this transfer of thought from what's been seen to what's unseen, this transfer of idea, I've walked with you, and now, he's going to tell them in a minute, my spirit's going to be in you. This transferring of ideas has them just so confused and so troubled. And in the middle of it, they're just reaching out for something. Jesus, just show us something so we don't have to have that kind of faith. From the very first time I read it, I've loved this quote from Mike Erie, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's sight. That's so well stated. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's sight. I don't need faith to believe that this iPad exists. I'm holding it in my hands, I'm seeing it in front of me, requires zero faith. Faith is required for what I can't see, what I can't touch, what I can't feel, what I can't hear audibly. That's where faith comes in. So I want to put this out to you so we don't just keep railing on Philip. Let's think about how this plays out in our own lives. Maybe it's prayers that you've prayed, prayers, prayers that I've prayed that sound like this. Jesus, you've said that you've promised to never leave me, never forsake me. But if you could just do something tangibly to let me know that you're here and really present, if you could just give me a sign, man, I'd be bought in. Jesus, you promised that you'd take care of my needs if I sought your kingdom first. But could you just stop the deluge of bills and unforeseen repairs and give me a little cushion so I don't have to live hand to mouth? Jesus, don't make me need it so much. Jesus, the pastor said when you dedicated our daughter that you loved her more than we ever could. She's wandered off from you and from us. If that's true, could you please do something to grab her attention, to change her heart, and bring her home? I get that prayer. I'm a parent of adult kids. But there's no need for faith in the middle of making God do something to show me he's good for his word. As it was for Jesus' disciples in the upper room, so it is, was for them and still is for us, his disciples, 2,000 years later. Look in your notes. This life requires a faith that is putting the full weight of our questions, our, ho- our hurts, and our hopes in his lap and trusting him for the outcomes here and into eternity. This life requires that kind of faith that takes the full weight of our questions, our hurts, and our hopes, places them in his lap and says, Jesus, we believe you're good for it. Finally today, John 14, verse 11, Jesus says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the part I told you earlier today is really fascinating to me. When Jewish religious leaders would be coming at Jesus and saying, prove it, show me something new, tell me this thing, when they were coming at him in all kinds of ways, and Jesus was just in a mode of teaching, what would he often do is he would say, I can keep talking, but tell me, what do you do with the things I've done? The man who couldn't walk came and showed himself to you. The man born blind came and showed himself to you. Does that not count for anything? More importantly, what do you think happened there? What's your, your response or your explanation for how those things happened? So he always used his own works, his signs, according to John's gospel, to remind them, I'm demonstrating the power of God. Even beyond what I say to what I do, that has to do something in you. Isn't this fascinating that with Jesus' own disciples, he's going to use the same line of thinking? He's not angry with them, but he's helping them see, you guys, you've seen me do things that no other person can do unless God was the one energizing and empowering them to do so. If you're having a, troub- a trouble believing that I'm in the Father and that I represent him perfectly to you, then at least believe in the things you've seen him do through me. This is what I love about Jesus is that in the moments of their concern, in the moments of their despair, he brings them back gently to remind them of what they already knew, I'm so grateful for the times in my life. I love that Shelley picked this song, Do It Again, today. It's one of my favorite songs. And I love it because what it is, it's a crying out to God, God would you keep showing up, but it's a reminder because you always have. I'm not asking you to do something that is so uncharacteristic or out of character for you because you have been faithful, you've never let me down. So God, would you do it again? It's based out of his faithfulness that that song cries out and asks the prayer it asks. And think of this wild thing as Jesus concludes as part of the passage. He says, and, and you, my followers, you're going to do things like I've done. These supernatural things that I'm asking you to be reminded of. And to be thoughtful of that, it's not just me as a teacher, a rabbi, I'm something different. You are actually going to do those things as well. Think back to what they've experienced. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him engage the elements. They've seen him demonstrate power over the demonic. And they've seen him raise the dead. Jesus says, I'm leaving but I'm empowering you to do the same kinds of things that I've been doing. That if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I am the way, the truth and the life and the things I've done should give credibility but just know when I go, those same kind of things are gonna give credibility to other people as well that you are my followers. So he tells them that they're gonna be empowered to do these things. Here's some questions for you. Were they able to later on heal the sick? Acts chapter three, verse six, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Saying this to a guy who's begging on the side of the road who can't walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts. I love it. Not just walking, but jumping and dancing and praising God. That's Acts 3. That's the very beginning of the new church. And Peter is healing people who, have not, who are not able to walk. Engage the elements. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken like an earthquake. And, when they, were, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Demonstrate power over the demonic. Acts chapter 16. She kept this up, this slave girl who was possessed for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. I love that part of the story. You're killing me. (laughs) Became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Raise the dead. Acts 9, verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. You'll have power to do these same things when I leave you. And the book of Acts is this wonderful um, reminder that that's exactly what happened. Note the purpose of why they would be empowered to do these same kinds of works that Jesus had done. We just read it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Can I remind you, Jesus has not changed his tune all throughout John's gospel, it's always been, it's all about the Father. I'm pointing you to him. I want the light to be shown on him by what he's called me, empowered me to do. That focal point should keep landing on him. It's not about how Jesus began his ministry. It's also how he finished it. This has always been his anthem. So I wanted to do something just a little bit different today as we close. I want you to uh, just look at a prayer I wrote this week and I want us to say it together. Let's look at these words up on the screen. Let's make these words our words this week. Say them with me. Father, would your work in our lives point to you, the one who has transformed us, hopeless sinners who've been adopted into your family as sons and daughters? Would others see your love and life clearly through what you've done in and through us, that you might receive all of the attention All of the glory, because you alone deserve it. Father, we say to you today, we are a people who at times are troubled, who at times are all a mess inside. And this passage today screams that when we are, would we take into account what Jesus said to a group of people who were troubled? to his disciples who were anxious, his disciples who were visibly upset. I'm going, but I'm going to finish working on my father's house and I'm gonna come back for you and I'm gonna bring you to myself. And don't worry about how to get there because it's all through me. Father, would those words hearken to us this week as we go through different occasions that cause us to be troubled? Would your word, would your promises to your disciples 2,000 years ago in an upper room, would those be the same things that provide great hope, great confidence, great promise to us today? And if you're here today and we keep talking so much about being a follower of Jesus or, or being one of God's adopted sons or daughters, but you would say, Todd, that's not true of me. I've never made any kind of response to God. I'm a deist. I believe he exists, but that's about it. And I would tell you today that the gospel is so much more than a cognizant belief that there is a big guy in the sky. But it's an invitation to come and to be forgiven and to be a part of his family by A, admitting Admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Be believing that Jesus, this Jesus who's been talking to his disciples today, this Jesus would ultimately go to a cross and die for all the sins of the world, including yours. Believe he's the only savior available. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my confidence, my faith in who you are and what you've done, not in what I can somehow do. And I wanna live my life simply following your example. You can make that decision right here, right now, this morning, and I would encourage you, don't let another moment go by until you do. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful for these words of comfort, these words of hope. We pray in Jesus' great name, amen.